Okay, Albert. All right. So, um, hey, man, tell me about yourself. I mean, I thought you know, you're, you're obviously Malaysian Chinese, right? Right, but right. I think even for the Malaysian Chinese, there's quite a bit of cultural, multicultural, multi-ethnic experience growing up. And, uh, and you've worked in different countries and now you're living in Australia. So, so what's it, what's it like being Alvern? What's, <laughs> what's your story? <laughs> well, well, from the beginning, if you were to say, if you were saying, um, how does it like to, to grow up, uh, as an Asian? I mean, I did grow up in an Asian setting because Malaysia is Asian. Uh, as you have mentioned, Malaysia is a multicultural uh, nation and it is, it is good and bad because the, the diversity is very interesting because you, you get to experience culture and interact with people from a different background. But at the same time, Malaysia is also a very unique jurisdiction because um, of the way uh, it has evolved since its independence. Uh, what, what was beginning of, what was beginning is it has got a very noble intention of uh, integrating all the community. Uh, but then it has sort of like uh, steer away from that vision a bit. And uh, I always hear about uh, people talking about how when I was growing up, Malaysian is always seen as one community. So, uh, but, so when you were growing up, like, what, what, give, a, give me an idea. When, when were you born? What year were you born? Well, I was born in uh, 1978. That makes me now. I'm in an age where I do not keep count anymore. <laughs> You're like, are you, is that the year of the monkey or a horse? That is the year. That is the year of the horse. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So born in yeah seventy eight. Now, now you grew up well, about similar to me. So, what was it like in the eighties growing up? You were you were talking about that. It's, this is the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the eighties, and. My, my grandparents uh, arrived in Malaysia from China. They, they left China during the times when it was very turbulent in China. Uh, I don't really have a background of how they arrived in Malaysia. I only know that my grandparents were born in China. Uh, so my parents... Do you know when they arrived? 20s or 30s? Before the Second World War? Uh, definitely before the Second World War. Yeah. Because my, my dad... He should be 83 this year, and he was born uh, in Malaysia. So my parents, my grandparents would have definitely arrived in, in Malaysia prior to Second World War. Oh, so your dad was even born in Malaysia, right? My dad was born in Malaysia. Okay. So I'm, I'm already a second generation of, uh, of Chinese growing outside of China. And because of that, that... Uh, because when I was born, my, my grandfather was no longer around, but my grandma was around. So there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of conversation in the house about how you know we, we always. I think there is still a bit of the um, at least during my amongst my father's generation, a lot of references being made to uh, China. We're from China. We're from China. We're from China. Still a, a lot of that reference being made at that time, and because I grew up in that family. Uh, I, I hardly mix with anyone outside my family when I was growing up during my formative years. So that makes me also reference my identity to Chinese a lot uh, as I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, but when I go to school and I interact with so, people of um, other cultural and other ethnic background, then I begin to see, oh, there's actually uh, non-Chinese <laughs> out there. It was quite. Yeah. I mean, seriously. When I was growing up, I hardly meet. I hardly meet up with anyone that is not really my culture or ethnic background. It's also because the area that I was growing up is a very, very strong Chinese area. Mm. What area is that? It was uh, Bukit Bintang at the time. It was it was known as the <laughs> area of the triad. <laughs> Can you say that place again? I didn't quite catch it. Uh, Bukit Bintang. Bukit Bintang. Bukit Bintang. Yeah. Okay. So it's translated really into like it's translated into Star Hill. It's called the Golden Triangle at the time. It's where all okay. the big shopping malls and and uh, all the big offices are now located right now. 
But so, while, so, while I was growing up, it's it's a rough area. <laughs> yeah. So in the 80s, it was like a triad, like a gangster area. I would say so, yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, shady activities happening in areas around my place. Mm. Now, was it mostly predominantly ethnic Chinese, so people similar to your background, or was it a definitely okay, definitely predominantly Chinese? Yeah, which also means that I hardly mix with anyone outside my ethnic background when I was growing up. Right, which led me so to you didn't really you didn't really meet me uh, to... other people of other ethnic backgrounds until what, you were like in your teenagers or when when I go to what what we call primary school. Um, not sure how is it being refer- referred to in, in the US when I, mean, I started that's where I started how old I was 12, 6 6 to 12 okay. 6 to 12 is when I go to primary school is that called junior high in, in America? Uh, you know what I've been out of the US for so long and my kids didn't go to school in the US so I, I really don't have a reference <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's primary. Yeah. 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 It was then that I started to meet with um, people from other cultural and ethnic backgrounds. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, so how was the gangster life? How what kind of impact did that have on you growing up? I mean, you must have seen and a lot of different things. or heard about a lot of different things happening in that part of Malaysia. Yes, heard about a lot of things. Um, but the good things was my mom was a strict, very strict in terms of controlling us. I I hardly get to leave the house to to play around my area, so to speak. I do have friends, uh, but I was never allowed to go out. I think my mom knows that it was a rough area. It is important to just lock me inside the house. I suspect partly it's also because uh, she has no time to, <laughs> she has no time right. to, to, to control anything um, beyond, beyond the usual looking after us, you know, because it was just hers and my family is, is huge. We all stayed in this really tiny house and she has to do all the chores and everything. So it was very tough on her. How many siblings did you have? I have uh, I'm the eldest. I got a younger brother and a younger sister. But stay oh. staying in the same household, apart from my parents, was also my grandmother, my uh, my aunt, my aunt, my my aunt from my uh, paternal side of my family. They were all spinsters, so they all we all stay in the same house. No. Okay, so when you say the word spinster, I think not everyone, including myself, is clear. What What do you mean by spinster? <laughs> oh, all, all my aunties, they're not married. They, mm. Yeah. So they, yeah. so they don't stay with their own family. They all stay in the same household. Well, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that's something unique about uh, Malaysian Chinese is, you know, families all stay together and uh, they grow up with a very strong understanding of their ethnic Chinese background. Um, and, you know, mm. I, I, I'm not sure why, but uh, they seem to preserve the Chinese culture really well. I mean, when you look at modern day China, how they celebrate Chinese New Year and some of those uh, very classical Chinese festivals, it's nothing like the way a Chinese Malaysian would celebrate. That Chinese Malaysians almost, it's almost like they've kept the original tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, I mean, I remember there are a whole load of festivals that we celebrate. Um, there's the winter solstice, there's the mid-autumn, and that's the irony of it, isn't it? Because Malaysia is not a four seasons country, but we celebrate um, festivals like this, which are actually clearly originated from China. Winter solstice and mid autumn. Uh, I think when we were young, we were also our parents or even my grandmother would tell the stories behind all these uh, festivals of um, mm. like Chinese New Year, the fifteen day dumplings in the, being thrown in, in into the river, all these kind of things. 
I don't remember the exact stories, but I remember that every festival has got the stories, and the stories always tie with a general or, or a fairy tale characters that's based in China. Right. And I remember there's also a lot of influence um, or a lot of theme about family. Um, is that what you remember as well? Mm, not so much, not so much, not so much of the theme about family. Mm. Yeah, for me, it always seemed like it all centered around family or unity or something. Or maybe that's what China was. Maybe that's the difference between China and Chinese in Malaysia. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, or maybe it's really become so something so so central in our family that you be, that I didn't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> so you <laughs> so you grew up you grew up as a good kid in a dangerous neighborhood. You were sheltered from everything. Um, when did you leave that area? At what age? When did I leave? Really, I moved out of the area. I moved out. out I moved out of the area um, after I got married. So I so oh. I lived and I lived I lived a really really long yeah. Of course, by the time when I was uh, late teenagers, and then moving on to uh, into my twenties, that area began to change mm. because. Uh, Developers have taken notice of uh, of the area. There has been some uh, good development happening in the adjacent uh, area, which led to you know the the, the development and, uh, and the price of the property in that area starts to rise. So it's, it became, although it was a predominantly a very a very Chinese area, I think maybe my late teens. Has begun to change. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, migrants from uh, Bangladesh has started to move to areas very near me uh, because they were the they were the foreign labor that came into Malaysia to supply uh, the labor force for a lot of the low paying labor jobs, and they start to move into that into that small neighborhood in what would be in the middle of a very large commercial <laughs> properties. When you go to the area right now, it's still a very strange um, area if you know the composition of the different ca- different categories of people living in this section of uh, Bugabin town. And then it's like this section, you've got all the poor uh, foreign laborers living here. Conditions aren't great. And then just right next to it, you have all the high-rise buildings and then all the uh, pricey commercial properties next to it. It's very interesting. Yeah. That seems like a central theme or repeating theme in Asia. You know, there's certain countries I've been to uh, where you still see that today. Oh, um, it's, like mm-hmm. they, it's like they don't really mix... <laughs> You know, uh, I, I find that, you know, in the U.S., or there's the talk about melting pot where all the different cultures and um, they all live together. Um, and also in Singapore, too. But I think in, in other parts of Asia, it's not very common for different cultures to sit, live together and um, and actually different income levels. I think that's not very common for them to, to come together as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I heard that in Malaysia, it's pretty segregated. Is that right? Mm, when I was growing up, yes. Um, right now, the right now I would say the it's being segregated based on not so much ethnic, but your income just, definitely. Oh, income! Yeah, I think that will never change. I think that'll never change. Yeah, you know, just the nature of how real estate works, real estate prices. I think that'll that'll never change. It's really mm-hmm. tough to change that. Yeah. So, so you had all these, you know, you had all these things going for you in Malaysia. Your town was changing; it was obviously growing. Why did you leave? And where did you go? Um, I left Malaysia after I got a job in in Singapore. Um, 
never thought I would leave. Uh, 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 I was, I, I did, I did, uh, I allowed myself to, to wander outside of Malaysia for a while. Actually, I went to China to work uh, for a company, we all know called Huawei, uh, for, a, for a couple of months. Um, it was a time where uh, I, was, I, was, I was reaching a stage of my career where I just want to try new things. And that opportunity came about. I, I, went, I went to China. It was completely not what I expected it to be. <laughs> what were you expecting? I'm curious because I, I have a similar experience. Um, the expectation is not so much of what China was all about. The expectation was very specific to what Huawei wanted to do with me. And in terms of how China was like, how is it like to work in China, the, the, the people there, the community, I went in there with absolutely no expectation and no, no, I don't even know what we will be. And I was open to it. And I would be, I would have been, I would have stayed in China. I would have stayed in China and worked there um, much longer, if not because they wanted me to travel to Colombia. <laughs> they wanted me to. They wanted me to be based in Colombia. Basically, they said, "Oh," and then I said, "This was not what we agreed." <laughs> um, and I said, "Okay, no, I don't want to go to Colombia." Um, and so I resigned and returned to Malaysia, and got a job in a bank. Uh, worked for a few more years in the bank. Got an opportunity to to move to Singapore and. Yeah, I felt it was definitely a good opportunity and everyone was, amongst all my colleagues and ex-colleagues then, a lot of them has left the country and go somewhere else, to Hong Kong, to UK, to Singapore. So call it the herd mentality. I so grabbed the opportunity and went. One of the main reasons was because the money is better. Seems like a common route for many Malaysian Chinese uh, with skills is that they would go to Singapore because of uh, you mm -hmm. know better quality of living, right? So so then after mm -hmm. that, I'm guessing after that you somehow moved to Australia, or is that how you ended up there? I moved to Australia because uh, well, when I met my wife, my wife was already an Australia resident. Uh, and she liked it here. We made a trip here uh, for holiday, and and I liked the place too. Um, in terms of the weather, in terms of the way, the, the living, the lifestyle here, I liked it. So it was. It has always been a plan to say, okay, when the time is right, we'll move here. Uh, so after a few years in in Singapore. Uh, when my daughter was born, we made a decision to say um, it would be better for our daughter to grow up in Australia and not in Singapore. So my wife and my daughter moved okay. first to Australia while I continued to stay in Singapore to, to work for a couple of years more bef before I moved, uh, before I take the plunge and moved to Australia. Uh, what, why would you guys think it's better for your do for your daughter or as a family to be in Australia? You you must see some brighter future in Australia. the The economy doesn't grow as fast as in Singapore either, right? So why would you choose that? When I was in Singapore, I heard a lot of stories about how the pressure being being put on uh, children growing up uh, is something that I don't really fancy. Uh, <laughs> I know how yeah. you know. It's when I look at a lot of my friends, they they send their kids to a lot of enhancement classes, put their children to a lot of um, uh, stress. I would say to really push them academically to improve uh, the Asian way, if you can call it. I, I somehow didn't really caught up with that. I somehow would prefer to just let my children grow up in a in a more, I wouldn't say relax. In a childhood where they can really experience childhood. Um, that was one reason. The other reason is because my wife has a residency here. And 
is coming, it was expiring. So the way Australian resident works is that they give you five years for you to make the move. And you have, you have to fulfill a certain period of time to stay in Australia before they give you the extension of uh, the residency. And, and it was coming to, that, to the five years where she has to decide to move or not or give it up. Mm-hmm. And looking at everything that was happening in Malaysia, all the political development, it was not very encouraging. <laughs> uh, so there was a lot of saying, you know, if you give up on Australian residency, we'll never get it back again. So we made a difficult decision for her to move first. And then I moved later because we wanted to just not give up on the residency. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like that's, you know, that's the future that you guys want for a family. That was very clear. Right. Yeah. So in the future, you guys are all going to be Australians. Yeah. For me, I'm not sure yet, but uh, I guess my, my daughter will be. Yeah. yeah. She she doesn't I don't think I don't think she identify herself as as Malaysian anymore. She's she's already speaking with a down under accent. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she has something really funny because you know the Olympics just concluded, right? Because um, I think there was one we were watching the Olympics one day, and then there was one event. There was the prize giving ceremony, and then there was an Australian champion, and then an Australian. National anthem started playing, and my daughter stood up and started singing. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, you're Australian." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Australia does a pretty good job of integrating, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've noticed. I've noticed a lot of uh, Asians also citing the same reasons for wanting to move to a country with more Western values is kind of to get get away from mm-hmm. the the system education system where it's forcing a lot of academic studies or um, based on test scores right and you know that that's interesting you look at people mm-hmm. in china today even though china is such a, a successful country from opportunity standpoint right i mean you're talking about how many people being lifted out of poverty in china it's incredible, and the riches in China. We all, we all have heard it's the crazy stories, but yet they all want their kids to have a future outside of China, or at least have an option to be outside of China. You know, so to me, it really feels like it does go back to you know, there is more in life than just achieving, and and. Monetary value, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting how we all have to work through that to realize that, and then try to give that to our children. Mm, yeah. Well, actually, I'd be very interested to really sit down and have a conversation with someone who, born, grew up, and spent his or her formative years in China, and then maybe spent the first few years of his or her career in China and then say, all right, I will actually want to move somewhere else and, and, and get that opinion, that point of view from that person um, of why do you want to leave China? Uh, because I, for me, Malaysia is some, somewhere where politically it's clearly very toxic for us. Mm. Uh, well, so there's uh, that, that's a that's a that's a big you know there's a lot to that what you just said politically toxic mm-hmm. for us who's us and why is it politically toxic can you expand on that that's a good question for for anything there is not ethnic malay uh because the nation the, the, there are a lot of policies in malaysia which favors uh, uh the ethnic malay the, I mean, it's actually very... I feel sad to actually refer them to day and us, day and us, because after all, we're all Malaysians. Mm. And I've got good friends, ethnic yeah. Malay, good friends. Uh, but because this aspect of, uh, of Malaysia is being used by the political parties for their own political advancement. Uh, so it became, it became an issue. I think, for example, because... 
If you're an ethnic Malay, you can actually purchase property at a discount. Mm. Right. And then why, I mean, do they pay more taxes? <laughs> do, we, do, we, do we ethnic Chinese pay less, pay less tax that we don't get this, this privilege? Um, so that's just one of the many, many reasons why uh, a lot of uh, ethnic Chinese decided to, to move out. So, so the definition of ethnic Malay, like how do they, how do they define that? Because you were born in Malaysia, your father was born in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a specific definition mm-hmm. of how many generations of Malay being born in Malaysia or living in Malaysia to qualify as ethnic Malay? Or is it simply their, your last name or the color of your skin? I mean, how do they define that? If I remember correctly, it's actually defines it's actually defined as someone first who practiced the religion of Muslim. Mm, so it's culture, yeah, religion. and culture of a Muslim. So this means that if if I return to Malaysia and I and I embrace the Islamic religion, I will I will I will be accorded all the privileges of an ethnic Malay. So, so it's an incentive for people to convert to Islam. Yes, essentially. Yes. Do, do you know? Do you know people who are like ethnically Chinese who did that to become quote unquote ethnically Malay? Yeah, I do. Wow. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, <laughs> but they, I, I mean, whether they do it because they want that privilege, I don't think so. Uh, and all of it is not because their decision is their parents' decision. So so I have a few classmates where their parents have embraced uh, the Islamic religion. So they became ethnic Malay, but I know they're Chinese. They, ethnically, they're Chinese, but under the constitution, they are being categorized as, as um, ethnic Malay. The, more, the, the accurate term is, they call it the sons of the land. It's called Bumiputra, the sons of the land. Wow. Right. So how how do you do that? Do you have to change your last name, or do you have to take a, an oath or something? I mean, I suppose anyone could just do that and continue to live their life the way they want, right? Yeah, you have to you have to change your last name. You have to change your name, um, and then you have to, you have to practice the Islamic religion. Of course, no one is going to police that whether you practice or not. Uh, well, well, actually, let me let me correct that. There is actually there are actually agencies in Malaysia who will police that. But if you if you if you make an effort not to practice <laughs> the the Islamic right. lifestyle, I guess you can get away with it. Um, but you are expected to practice the lifestyle. Yeah. So you you will be celebrating the Malay festivals. You won't be celebrating the Chinese festivals. You will have um, your name change. Um, you will have to go to Friday prayers and. That is fascinating. Yeah, is and your children, your children will have to be, will have to embrace uh, Islam. And it's very difficult once you embrace Islam. Uh, it's very difficult to to not to get out from the religion in Malaysia. Wow, I mean that you know that reminds me of how uh, when Donald Trump went on the America First, you know, his whole message was America First, and that was so controversial, right? Like. <laughs> You're such a racist, but when you compare of what, essentially in Malaysia, this is Malay first, right? When you compare it to that, uh, where, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to change your last name. You have to convert to a different religion and to do things a certain way. I mean, those are much more, I would say, mm-hmm. much more exclusionary than being mm-hmm. America first, where America first was about, you know, let's have yeah. policies that benefit all Americans as citizens. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just it's just incredible how how they made America <laughs> first sound so bad. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's just all all political. It's 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 a small fraction of people trying to manipulate these aspects of the livelihood of Malaysians purely for their political gains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you see that as a continuing trend. Um, I can't imagine that being good for the Malaysian economy. 
it's not it's not um it's a continuing trend and it's also um the polarizations of the community i mean trying to separate each of us into our ethnic group it's just one aspect right the other aspect is because of the years of corruption and i'm not afraid to say it we all know because of the years of corruptions and incompetence in the government this has led to a deterioration of a lot of the uh, uh what do you call it the education sector the health sector it's, it's so bad that when I listen to my siblings talking about the education, the quality of education, the quality of public education in Malaysia, it's gone so bad that everyone would want to be able to send their kid now to private school. I mean, there are still some very good public education institution, but this is it's lacking, right? And people want to send the kids to, to private school. And it's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a failure in 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 this aspect. It's really something that, which is a byproduct of all this corruption that's been happening for years. Yeah. So that yeah, also yeah. led to people, you know, move out of Malaysia and go somewhere else, so that their children yeah. will be able to get the quality education that they would want. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know when corruption starts to affect the the institutional pillars such as education, healthcare, and public safety, mm-hmm. and there, there's no question that you're going to start seeing mm-hmm. an outflux of people, uh, and, mm-hmm. and those people tend to be ones with skills necessary for building the economy, mm-hmm. right? Um, if if I am capable in situations like this, I'm definitely going to take my skills to Australia or something else. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I, just, I remember hearing about that one was it one MDB scandal or uh, the previous Malaysian mm-hmm. prime minister? Well, like, I don't know how mm-hmm. much money they took. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. A lot. A lot. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, do you know that jail for that? He, he, I didn't really follow the the story, but I know he was he was convicted. But now he's back as the national economic advisor because there is a change of government. <laughs> <laughs> that is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, coming back to the point, Bill, about uh, the quality of the institution in in the country, which caused the people to move away. Now, this is the aspect where I where I think it's not happening in China, or if it's happening, then I don't know about it. Because I always hear that you know, the quality of schools in China is, is great. Healthcare, maybe not, but education is too great, if, I, if I'm hearing correctly. So I don't see that push factor for people to leave China to go somewhere else. Yeah, I would say from, from my experience in China, those who, are, who have the money, uh, who are above the, the middle class, they're not necessarily leaving, but what they are doing is they are setting up offshore uh, safe zones, as you would say. You know, they're making sure that their children will have some sort of residency or citizenship uh, situation outside of China. Uh, they're making sure they have properties and investments outside of China. I mean. They're, they're, they basically are hedging their bets against China because they, they see that this mm-hmm. is either not sustainable or something could happen in the future, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, they, there's a huge loophole in the U.S. where if you are born on American soil, you can get American citizenship. Um, so many countless thousands of Chinese have, have used that loophole, gone over to the U.S., um, had a child and then came back a few months later and their child has that U.S. citizenship with the hopes of one day, if they need to escape, they could, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, but because mm-hmm. I think things are going so well in China right now that it's mm-hmm. not a rush, but everyone has that in the, in the back mm-hmm. pocket, you know. Even 
even my mm-hmm. former colleagues, I mean, these are, we're just talking about middle class white color folks. They, they're, they're getting their, they're getting away at least a ticket, an optional ticket to the U.S. or Canada uh, or Europe. You know, and they're making sure that's in a back pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so who knows? Maybe one day something will happen and it'll, it'll trigger more of an exodus. I think that I think the Chinese government obviously knows about this, and and hence one of the reasons why um, they've been cracking down on Bitcoin ever since you know Bitcoin first came out, right? Because it's the <laughs> perfect medium mm-hmm. for getting wealth out out mm-hmm. <laughs> of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting. Speaking of which, speaking of Bitcoin, I wanted to you know talk to, ask you more about the crypto because I know you've been getting into more crypto lately. Um mm-hmm. and it's changing so fast. Like, you know, I bought my first Bitcoin when it was like a thousand dollars. And since then good on, good yeah, on you. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately I I didn't know what huddle meant back then. <laughs> <laughs> but you know since then it has exploded right you can't even keep track of you know all the different cryptocurrencies out there the defi projects the different platforms i mean what what do you what do you what are you doing right now i mean where where's your focus are you still interested in this do you think there's a long term future here i'm definitely very interested in this space um in fact i feel that i i I entered this space late compared to a few of my friends Mm. and and i was talking to another friend the other day and i told him you know sometimes when you are having a good professional career and you're a little bit affluent it's sort of like make you even more difficult to accept this whole concept of crypto yeah and especially with my my background in banking because you are so ingrained into how the world and finances should function. It's difficult to actually puncture that and allow something that is totally unconventional to, to come in. So ironically, it's because I've been out of the job for so long <laughs> and give, <laughs> give, give me an avenue to say, hey, you know, oh, there's actually opportunities here. So, and having been into to it, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very interested. And I see that my interest will only uh, increase through time. Do I see it as the future? I don't know, hard to say. I know that, I mean, we all know that the greatest risk to, to crypto is um, regulatory intervention. But how effective is regulatory intervention Right. Yeah, because you you no said you know Ch- you said China has actually banned it. Does it really affect crypto in a way that they intended it to be? I don't think so. I don't think so. Right. There are always people saying you know if you really want to shut down crypto, you got to shut down the internet. <laughs> yeah, how's that gonna happen? Yeah, how's that gonna happen? I mean. <laughs> It's like an end-of-the-world situation. Well, you can shut down that part of the internet in China, but you know, as long as it's, the light's on somewhere else, people will find a way to get around it, right? Yeah. But I, I do think, you know, what you said earlier is, is uh, I, I feel like everyone I talk to about crypto, most people I talk to about crypto, they either have no clue or they have a negative uh, feeling about it through what they hear in the media. You know, it's usually not through their own experience. Mm. Mm. And and I think there's a small part of mm. the population of people who are risk takers, who want to mm. learn by experimenting themselves, you know, and mm. they're often the early adopters. And I think these are people who are doing crypto today, the, and, and they are the ones who see it and just kind of mm. waiting for the day when, you get more and more of the mass population to buy into it or to start leveraging these platforms. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that day will come, but it'll be slow. And Mm. uh, hopefully when it comes, you're still there. (laughs) We're still alive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
but it's definitely you picking. It's, it's definitely picking up a lot, of, or or maybe it has been picking up a lot of pace in the last few years. But for me, I only get to see it in the last couple of months because I was uh, uh, I've been investing in it. Uh, but I, as I as I learn yeah. or research and ask my friend to explain to me what's happening, I see that it's really a whole new universe out there. Uh, and it's really a lot of opportunities whether or not it will be adopted entirely in the mainstream it, it probably will take one generation before it's, that can happen yeah yeah I, I, I think when I look at when I look at the uh, the pace at, at which is changing it is exponential you know from when I first bought yeah. my Bitcoin in, I think that was in 2013 to now, it, the pace is exponential, but my ability and my time to comprehend and research and understand it has like, it's like regressing, right? <laughs> like I'm, not, I'm not getting smarter, I'm not having more time, but this stuff is just taking yeah. off. And uh, yeah. I feel like the only way to really be part of it is just to try. It's just to, to go through it, and you know your lot, your losses or my my yeah. losses or uh, the fees I pay on an Ethereum network, I now consider that as tuition <laughs> costs. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You you know you can actually track how much how much fees that you have paid uh, on the Ethereum network. Yeah. Oh, and uh, no, if a, you, if I'm, you see, I'm afraid to look at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a few friends who, who, who look at the number and say, wow. <laughs> that could have been a pool of money by itself. Yeah. But yeah. if you look at all the, I mean, we're venturing into crypto, uh, a very interesting topic. Um, because that space, it has been an eye-opener for me uh, on what people are doing um, in it. Um the concept of a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO, and how it functions. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. And, and how DeFi actually works. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very topical thing. Uh, not, re not reading our conversation topic yeah. today, but it's, it's certainly a very interesting yeah, topic. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I just started learning about the DAO and, uh, and more about the different DeFi projects. And... You know, and mm. because th this this wasn't even a thing when Bitcoin was started, right? Was, there wasn't even mm. a concept. I had never heard of it. But after you started talking, telling me about Olympus DAO, I mm. started looking into that, reading about I still don't understand all of it, but it's certainly mm. interesting on how much it's evolved and um, how much it could change the financial landscape around the world. That's crazy mm -hmm. to even think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is actually a new DAO launching next week called Klima. It's a very unique KLIMA. Now, the, the the vision of this DAO is actually to affect climate change. Oh. Um, and I mean, the Olympus DAO that we both know is trying to build the treasury with um, assets from the crypto world, assets from the DeFi industry if you can call it industry. Now, the Klima DAO is trying, it's going to build their treasury with carbon credits. Ah, yes. That's a big thing, yeah. They want to buy off all the carbon credits and put in their treasury so that, because carbon credits is, is as far as I know, is, a, is an appreciating asset. So, they want to, it's pretty new too. They want to, they want to build a liquidity, use the liquidity to buy off all the carbon credits and then if the if the big corporations around the world wants carbon credits, they will have to buy from them. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So what would be, I mean, I'm, I believe in the whole carbon credit system. And I started to buy an ETF for carbon credits. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's KBRN. Mm -hmm. um, but why wouldn't I just buy the ETF instead of getting involved in this climate DAO and, and spending more money on the Ethereum network? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, it's not going to be in Ethereum. It's going to be on Polygon, which oh, means Polygon. that your fee, the fee, wow, the fee that you pay will be a lot lower. Thank goodness. Yeah. I don't have the answer for that. Uh, but I just find that this, this whole concept of this particular DAO, very noble <laughs> and, and very interesting. Yeah. Well, it definitely has a promising future because yeah. I, I know that uh, there are actually a lot of startups now um, not, you know, we heard about startups who are trying to come up with um, carbon capture technology, but now there's more and more startups and investment opportunities that are about the operations of um, carbon capture. I, I think this is going to be a thing that's going to be more and more profitable to operate there. And henceforth, the value of these carbon credits are going to go up. People are going to want to produce them and then people are going to need them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Especially China. You look at what China's doing. They're, they're going all in on that too. You know, they're definitely, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of deep, you know, carbon capture projects coming up in China as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Climate DAO, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. So that's, that's the next thing that, that's on your radar. Definitely. Especially when people are telling me that the APY is five figure. <laughs> Five figures. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now you have me listening. Yeah. So when you told me Olympus Dow was a five figure APY, I said, uh, talk to me when you've lost all your money <laughs> in the scam. <laughs> and now, now I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the four figure APY, and I'm thinking, why didn't I do it back when it was five figures? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, right? Like, like what I said earlier, because because our mind is uh, so ingrained in that conventional knowledge and understanding of the world, it's very difficult for us to accept something that is something that is uh, challenge that conventional thinking. Granted, granted, a five-figure APY is completely out of this world. It's difficult. <laughs> uh, I think that redefines APY. Yeah, right? it's, it's just the Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah. I mean, if I, I read a book by Ray Dalio last year, he's one of his famous books, Principles, and I still remember his, a few of his major points. Simple, be open-minded about things. That's all he said. Be open-minded. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that's easy to say, but... I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just glad that at our age, we're still able to stay open-minded. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I meet people who are 10 years <laughs> older than us or 20, and there's no way they're going to they're gonna put some, you know, even 1% of their wealth in something they don't understand. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But it's, it's actually <laughs> to our, our advantage. I think we live in this unique time in which we have an opportunity to get involved in these things that question our assumptions. And mm-hmm. they definitely have uh, the, the potential to change the world. I mean, even mm-hmm. you look at all the, all the investments going into crypto, you know, there's, there's some people who are way much smarter than we are and much more well-researched that also believe in this thing. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because I'm not sure whether it is a saying in, in America because in Malaysia or in Singapore, there is, a, there is an observation where they say, you know, specific, specific to the equity market, they say, oh, you know, if, if, if every man on the street is in the equity market, if the aunties and the uncles in the, in the markets <laughs> is in the equity market, you know that the equity market is, is overheated, right? It's, there's just too much speculation because people are just yeah. putting people are just putting money in the equity market purely because they just hear that it's going up. So, And it's easy to just put money in the equity market. Open an account, find a broker, and you're in. Now, the crypto market is very different. I don't think you will be able to find the auntie-uncle from the market who will be in the equity market. Right. First of all, right. to get in is is complex. The, the the setting up of the account, the wallet, convert your convert your fiat money into a crypto 
And then this crypto has to be converted to another crypto and then you have to stake it and then you have to go here, you have to go there. It's complex. It, it needs effort. So that effort itself has already filtered a lot of people who just want simple, quick approach where you just invest by a click yeah. of a button. So those people has been filtered out. And then you have the other people who are uh, no disrespect, uh, not so educated kind of people. Uh, th they won't put in money into crypto. So like you say, the people who are into crypto, you will, have, you will find some people who are just in there for purely for speculative reasons. But there is a huge proportion of it that are actually well-read, well-educated, or at least have some level, some degree of uh, understanding of what they are putting their money into. Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely the uh, uneducated part that <laughs> follows the advice of those with a banking background. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a more of a risk taker, you know, it's, I, I mm -hmm. hear about a new idea, like, well, oh, that sounds interesting. I wonder what it's like, um, you know, and that's how I got it into, got into equities trading and trading stocks back when I was in <laughs> high school. I was, I was thinking, you know, back then, um, online trading just became a thing. And I was thinking, oh, what can I buy? I got, I got like $300 in savings. I'm going to try and buy Pfizer. I heard they have this little blue pill that can give you erections might be a good thing <laughs> you know <laughs> and it was like fifty dollars in commission and trade or something right oh but yeah that was my first play and i i remember clearly like oh and just going through the motions of setting up an account uh, executing a trade and seeing what the transactions mm -hmm. look like i learned so much from that you know so I definitely, I definitely encourage people to to explore in crypto. I think um, they they will definitely learn more about it by playing with it. But it's hard to learn just by reading, because who has the time to sit yeah. down and read the documentation of a DAO? Um, most people just read what mm -hmm. they read through media or, or some other party that tries to simplify it, and they often have, have their own biases yeah. towards it. So you don't really get. The, the true understanding until you play the game. Yeah. And if you read, how much you understand? Anyway? Oh, yeah. Maybe 20%. <laughs> it's just, that high? <laughs> well, there's just so much, you know, the, there, there's so much uh, new terminology too. We'll talk about the exponential increases in complexity. That goes the same with acronyms and terminology. It just mm -hmm. It's a totally new set that I'm not used to either. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely still a lot of risk in there, um, but I mean, if you're if you're open-minded and uh, do your own reading and play around with it, you learn. And there's a lot of things to learn at the moment. Yeah. So, what do you see for yourself in the future once you become a crypto multimillionaire? Do you, are you going to be settled <laughs> down in Australia for the rest of your life, or do you do you see yourself going back to Malaysia? Uh, or Asia some other time in the future. You mean to, to settle or, or yeah, to settle. for other opportunities? Your, um, your next phase, your next phase of life, when you don't care about those opportunities anymore, you want to enjoy <laughs> your life or what time you have left on this earth. What do you see yourself doing <laughs> that? Um, yeah, I, I think if when my, when, when my daughter is grown up, and if I still have the energy to move around, I, yeah, I would love, I would still want to make the move back to Malaysia. Maybe not permanently, but have extensive period of stay there. Part of it is because, I mean, we're all, we're all human, right? And human have, uh, there is a need to, to see where our identity lies. I still identify, identify myself as a Malaysian. Malaysia is still home uh, so it's only natural for me to to want to go back um, and also because malaysia comparatively is uh, the cost of living is so much lower compared to australia so it right. would be it, it would make more economic sense 
to go back to Malaysia um, for extensive stay. Unless, of course, you know, certain crypto that I have just blow up, it becomes like Bitcoin. This is a separate story. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll still be going back because I don't think you can get the same prawn noodle as you can in Malaysia, right? Yeah, at that price. <laughs> at that price. Yeah, something about the food and the culture will always bring an Asian mm. back uh, to that place. Mm. Yes, yes. So good. Well, I I, uh, I appreciate you sharing your your background and all those things that you know about crypto. Um, it's, I think it's crypto is really fascinating world, um, and it could mm-hmm. give us the opportunity to to live with more options as well. And. I hope you figure out. I hope you 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 get back to cooking again. I really miss your um, your updates on all the culinary exploration you were doing earlier in the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, I'm still doing a lot of cooking. I just don't post it up anymore. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I have I have uh, successfully um, released myself from the addiction of Facebook. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 How did you do that? Did you delete it? Um, there were a couple of steps. First of all was to, my first step, because you have to do things gradually, right? Because uh, I read in another book, if you, want to, if you want to stop a habit, you know, you have to really, if it's a really bad habit, you have to do it gradually. It's very difficult to just turn it off instantaneously. You won't get that result. So the first thing that I did was to move Facebook into the back page of my phone. You know how you have the first page, the second page. Mm, so yeah, it is yeah, to yeah. to move away. It is to make it inconvenient for me to mm. access Facebook. And the funny thing is, as soon as I did that, I realized that uh, when I open my phone, I will press on that location that where Facebook used to be. Mm, wow, yeah. that's ingrained. It's it's scary. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's like why am I pressing this this you know this app? Like you're, you're like a monkey who's already been trained to receive some sort yeah. of a pleasure by pressing that spot. Yeah, it's like the it's like all the muscle memory. As soon as I turn off my phone, that's the first thing that I press. But Facebook's not 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 there anymore. I was like, oh okay. <laughs> so it'd be, that was the first step. So that didn't really eliminate my uh, eliminate me logging into Facebook. I just I just went in less because it takes effort for me to go behind and then go in. So after I managed to reduce my, my time on Facebook, the next one is I, I log off from Facebook. So if I want to go on now, I need to not only go back to the back page to go to the Facebook app, I need to go to the Facebook app, log in, key in my password. So it becomes another layer of inconvenience. Hmm. And to one, two weeks, three weeks, can't remember. And now, yeah, I've not logged on for a long time. Then I get emails. I get emails from Facebook saying you have three hundred and twenty notifications. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. And that because I don't, yeah. I don't spend that much time looking at Facebook. I have more time to read about crypto. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now, now the first thing you you uh, you go to is Trading View. Yeah, <laughs> check out the price. <laughs> I know what that feels like. Yeah, yeah. But you know that I did a similar thing. I actually deleted Facebook, and I didn't uh-huh. feel the need to go back to it. Yeah. Uh, but but what was interesting was I started to get attached to the utility value of Facebook. Like I wasn't going on Facebook to see what people are posting. I was going to the Facebook marketplace because uh, I was trying to, you know, moving to Basel, I wanted to buy certain things. Right. And I found the, the marketplace actually to be really useful here in Switzerland. Mm. So now I'm, I'm back on Facebook again. <laughs> well, if that's a utility, then you know exactly what is it that you're looking for. That at least as uh Yeah. Is there is a actual function for you of why you got you get into Facebook instead of just browsing? Yeah, yeah. 
But I, I find it interesting that everyone talks about trying to get off of Facebook or social media, but then we just end up getting hooked on something else, you know, mm-hmm. something else that provides that uh, short-term pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and it's always something that disconnects you from your family, the things that you mm-hmm. believe are important. Mm-hmm. You know, so I kind of blame you a little bit for getting me back into crypto. <laughs> now I'm, look, I'm looking at those prices every day, every morning. <laughs> Don't worry. The, the rebates will go in regardless of the price. <laughs> That's true. Price doesn't matter with Olympus Dow. Yeah. Just buy it. Yeah. Well, it must be getting pretty late over there. Thanks for your time, Alvern. My I pleasure. wish you a great night. Thanks for staying up so late over there in Melbourne. And, My pleasure. Uh,